Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, still in Las Vegas, live from the trenches, from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I'm glad you mentioned the fact that I'm still here. I'm actually back here. I took a two-day break, or really like a 36-hour break, to go see the Anthony Davis press conference in Los Angeles. But I got to say... For longtime listeners who love judging my karma, you know, it's like, do the basketball gods love me? Do they hate me? We had a Mm -hmm. very karmic moment here in Las Vegas when I landed, Andrew, from LAX, because everybody will remember that I had that 14-person passenger van from Hertz at the Cleveland airport during the 2018 finals, where I was basically ready to chaperone an entire trip, you know, entire uh, elementary school class of kids to the zoo. It was probably the... The least cool vehicle, and it was the last remaining vehicle on the entire lot. Well, karma uh-huh. came back for me hard, Andrew. It went completely the opposite direction because I pulled up late night at uh, McCarran Airport, and what is waiting for me? A free upgrade to this little baby Mercedes coupe with the drop top. I had to like put the seat all the way down basically to the ground to be able to fit into it. I had to fold myself in, sort of like that famous yeah. picture of Wilt Chamberlain where he's basically like driving from the backseat of a sports car. That was me for the last two days, and I had all these beautiful mental images of just driving through the American Southwest with my little uh, Ben's coupe, just completely <laughs> just riding out. But the problem is the trunk can barely hold a duffel bag, and I'm not a very light packer. So unfortunately, yeah. I had to trade the car in today for a more pragmatic, practical Oh, uh, come SUV. on. Seriously? I was so excited to just picture you driving around in that Ben's. I'm glad you described it as a baby Ben's. Because it is. It's like this little coupe <laughs> that I would imagine like a female rapper driving or like Shaq's wife or something. No, so imagining it, you like 6'5 crouched into it was great. It's like the car that Jay-Z would brag about giving to his side chicks. That's what I was driving. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Um, um, but it, so yeah, you, what, it just, you turned it in? That's lame. I, yeah, I had to turn it in. There just was not enough room for all of my stuff. I'm not kidding you. Like You could barely fit a shoebox in the trunk of this thing. The gas mileage was actually pretty impressive. Impressive. Zero to sixty was incredible. I did some uh, did some <laughs> practice, uh, you know, drag racing at the Thomas and Max Center parking lot yesterday. It felt very good. I I kind of just wanted to show off to James Herbert from CBSSports.com. You know, the true power uh, of you know European automotive manufacturing, but. Nevertheless, uh, I've, I'm borderline psychotic at this point after being in yeah. Vegas for most of the last week and a half, and, and this is what I've got going for me. This is what I've had to look forward to. I love it. You know, I mean, the things we get into in the in the depths of July with our NBA podcast does not surprise me that you had too much luggage for the Benz, given that you have been in Vegas for three straight weeks now. I'm glad that you at least have clean clothes uh, working in your favor. But Ben, we need to talk about the karma aspect of all this. Oh, boy. Because if you recall... On our last podcast, at the end of last week, we had an emailer named Waz write in and say that the universe is clearly conspiring against Ben Golliver to punish you for some of your more stubborn takes over the past few years. And then you responded undaunted by the universe's messages and said you wouldn't change a thing, you have zero regrets, and you're fine with the way everything has played out. 
And that was fine. I admired your response. You know, you're a proud takesman and you're not going to be bothered by any of this. Um, I held it down. Yet, I thought I did pretty well. It wasn't my best, but I did okay. Yes, absolutely. You weathered the storm, which is really the best any of us can hope for in a situation like that. And yet, clearly the universe was listening to that podcast because no less than 24 hours after that pod went live, the other shoe dropped Russell hard. It really Westbrook dropped hard. <laughs> was traded to your Houston Rockets. James Harden apparently personally lobbied for the deal to come together. And where does that leave you, man? Look, it's another uh, absolute crisis. I mean, I don't know who I feel more betrayed by, Kevin Durant, the GM, or James Harden, the GM. I mean, both of them, <laughs> their taste in point guards, just very, very, very questionable um, this this summer. But I would I would say this, to kind of wiggle out of this one, because I know Waz is ready to come back at me. Just remember, if James Harden can carry a player who plays with purpose, but not a purpose, to a title— doesn't that automatically basically make him the GOAT? I mean, this is a guy who can't get out of the first round, right? So <laughs> if he somehow carries Westbrook to the title, it validates everything I've ever said positive about Harden the player to the nth degree. Right. And if he can't do it, again, it's much like the uh, the Brooklyn Nets situation. We all know who I'm going to blame for it. you know. So I think it actually makes my life a little bit easier when it comes to Harden defending because I'll be honest, it's a thankless task. And I've been dug in here, like you mentioned, the trenches, the last three or four years against just unrelenting <laughs> attacks by you and, and most of basketball Twitter, who just does not understand the brilliance of what this guy and does not appreciate the brilliance of what this guy can do on the court. Um, yeah. But I do think... See, Ben, look, this is why you're elite, honestly, because I was sitting here being like, God, I can't imagine how depressed he must be thinking about having to watch Westbrook over the next few oh, years. We'll get to that. We'll watch, get to that. <laughs> well... But at the same time, I mean, look, you and I have had some knockdown, drag out arguments over Harden. And so I was kind of elated to see you stuck with Russ. But you're right that Russ is ultimately only going to be like the world's most convenient scapegoat should the Rockets falter somewhere down the line. And there's no way this will ever be Harden's fault. And really, you're coming out of this deal more Teflon than ever. It does feel a little bit like a get-out-of-jail-free card, I'm not going to lie, but I have <laughs> a few different thoughts. First of all, do you remember when KD uh, first uh, pulled the leg muscle or whatever he did against the Houston Rockets, and then my first yep. text to you was, Dynasty over? I just had that sick feeling in my stomach. We didn't even know what was wrong with him. I didn't even know if it was Achilles or whatever, but my instant reaction was like, well, there goes the Warriors. I had the same feeling when I saw the the trade news on Westbrook, you know, and obviously Houston has no dynasty, but they've been in this contending window for a while. And to me, I yeah. just had this like flash forward moment to five years where we're like, man, James Harden had such an incredible individual run there year after year after year. He couldn't get over the hump and then they traded for Westbrook and then it was over. Like that's where my mind went. So that, that will just kind of in perspective. Uh, let you know yeah. how dark I got in that moment. For sure, it was like, oh my goodness, what are these guys doing? But I want to <laughs> tie this back real quickly before we dig into what this is going to look like. You remember how yeah. we were saying we've got to praise Uncle Dennis, Dennis Robertson. We've got to praise uh, you know Rich Kleiman and the players for orchestrating these uh, team-up situations as opposed to giving the credit to like the Jerry West and the Sean Marks of the world. Yep. I think this is also... If we're going to be giving them the credit, we've got to start holding these players to account if it doesn't work, too. And I think 
the fact that James Harden was the one who pushes for it, we shouldn't be so quick to let him off the hook if this doesn't work, right? I mean, I think that yeah. he's going to wind up having to shoulder some of the blame as Harden the GM uh, in this analysis if this pairing doesn't work because much like KD and Kyrie Irving, they're playing buddy ball. You know, they have the fond memories of seven years ago. They like getting dressed up and showing each other what amazing outfits they've got. Uh, they like getting these crazy stats that no one's ever done before. They're both from Southern California. Like, there's a lot of comparison points where these guys can be, you know, feeling related and connected in ways that nobody else can relate to. Uh, right. But if it doesn't work, the person who's driving it, the person who really wants it, deserves the blame. And I think that's Harden. I really cannot imagine Daryl Morey and the Houston Rockets front office trading Chris Paul, two picks and pick swaps for a player who's got the extra year at the end of his contract that's going to be paying him just outrageous sums four years going forward. I understand that their philosophy is collect stars no matter what, worry about the fit stuff later, but it was just a Uh bad trade on the merits, and it's the kind of trade you only do if your superstar is holding a gun to your head. Well, okay, so I understand what you're saying there, and I think that's a really good point in terms of the way we grade a lot of the moves that have happened this summer. Like, okay, so yeah, Kawhi was able to hold the Clippers hostage and make them send out five picks and two swaps and Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Gallinari, which is like a crazy amount of value. And the same deal with the Lakers sending all that for Anthony Davis and then Kyrie and KD teaming up and now Harden. I do think that we should start asking the question like, okay, so... Superstars can do this, but is this the most effective way to use their leverage? And I think when you start looking at the way stars are going to view building a team, it's not that different from the way a coach would try to build a team. Where like you go back to some of the moves Doc Rivers made when he was running the Clippers, he had a lot of faith in himself. And the same with Tibbs in Minnesota, the same with Stan Van Gundy, like they weren't worried about future assets. They weren't worried about what guys cost because they said, all right, let's get everybody in here and we'll find a way to make it work. And I definitely think that's the way someone like James Harden feels about a partnership with Russell Westbrook, someone he really respects. And I think the assumption is that, all right, like that guy's a great player. I'm a great player. I like this dude. I hate CP3. So let's get this dude into Houston and and we will find a way to make it work. And that may be true, but uh, by the same token, I think sometimes the players lack perspective in the same way that coaches 100%. do. Where, Look, like, team building you need is an to art. be able to take the long view. Absolutely. Team building is an art. Understanding uh, your own strength and weaknesses, we can all try to do that. We can all try to be introspective, but a third party is always going to be better at looking at that than anyone else. You know, there's a reason why right. I mean, executives are able to say, okay, here's my best player. Here, who can make him better? What types of players make his life harder? Uh, and construct things. I mean, if you're going to go this route with it, I almost feel like the players need to have their own hand-selected GMs, like their own trusted guys who they feel like, okay, this guy can uh, construct the roster that I want. Because yeah. it's just like with the coaches who are getting too much power with the presidents. Like there needs to be, uh, you know, a division of uh, a separation of church and state. There, it's the same deal with the players. I mean, there's no possible way you could tell me that James Harden and Russell Westbrook is going to be a very functional fit, a championship caliber functional fit. I just do not see it. 
you know, Harden likes to play deliberate, half-court, isolation, slow down. Westbrook's up and down, uh, you know, fast and loose, turning the ball over like crazy, you know, trying to get out in transition, push the tempo. Westbrook, yeah. you know, crimps the court around Harden. Uh, he needs to have the ball in his hands. Harden, you know, doesn't move when he doesn't have the ball. Neither does Westbrook. Defensively, you, you kind of hard uh, hide Harden on bigs, and now you're going to have to hide – Westbrook because he hasn't really proven that he can be that kind of lead point of attack defender night in night out anymore at this stage of his career so now you're hiding Mm -hmm. both of your best players on the court I mean there's just so many fit questions that didn't even exist with with Chris Paul and so I can understand some people saying or Harden arguing look Westbrook is younger he's more explosive he's more productive he stays healthier therefore he's better than Chris Paul in a vacuum I agree with that argument but that doesn't mean he's a better fit and I, I think it's asking too much for any player to have a sophisticated understanding of team building when we see executives spend decades learning only this and still getting a lot of things wrong because it's an imperfect science. And, and that just worries me. And I think, unfortunately, you know, for Houston, I mean, I think this has taken them in a, a pretty dark direction. Like I see all these Rockets bloggers who are trying to talk themselves into it. Oh, I'm going to like rationalize this. Like, guys, don't. You've watched this for the last seven years. <laughs> you know exactly what it's going to be. Go out there and die on your hill. You know, like yeah, <laughs> that that's my message. Anyways, I don't know about you. Your message to Rockets fans is essentially that you guys were on the right side of history for the last five years. So don't go back now. You had it right the first time. Is that correct? Well, yeah. There was one guy who's trying to say he's going to tattoo Westbrook's stat line on his face because he never thought the Rockets would trade for him. It's like, bro, just change your account. Like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just stop rooting for the Rockets, maybe. Um, here's the one thing that I would add. I do think you're letting Maury off the hook to some degree on this one insofar as I think that this is actually pretty consistent with the way he's done business in Houston for a while now. And I think that what he was looking at with Chris Paul is a guy who was going to be untradeable for the next few years. I mean, literally, like we talked about potentially flipping him for Wiggins, and that was even like not necessarily a sure thing. Like you look across the league, there just weren't that many options out there for a team that would want Chris Paul and trade for him with the expectation that he was going to be excited to be there because he's at a point in his career where he wants to be on a contender. So that kind of like limits the pool. And the Rockets' hands were going to be tied with CP3. And I imagine what the Rockets thought was this is a get-out-of-jail-free card with a guy who is more talented than Chris Paul now. He's younger, and we can continue to chase titles for the next few years this maybe extends our window a little bit but I agree with you in that like the downside of this deal and I wrote this the other day is that rather than revitalizing the current era in Houston like this kind of just sealed its fate and that's a distinct possibility and probably something that even Maury understood as he did the deal and um, I don't know I honestly don't know how it's going to end I think that They are going to be able to do a lot of damage in the regular season and Westbrook's energy is going to help. And like when you're in that situation where you're platooning Russ and Harden next year, like they're going to be an awesome team for the first 82 games. But I, I, what frustrates me is I did like the mix that they were going to be bringing to the table in the playoffs and they just became much easier to guard in the playoffs with Westbrook in the mix instead of Chris Paul And if you're Houston, at this point, 
that's kind of all that should matter. Like, I understand that there's some real value in getting the one seed next year, getting the one or two seed to have home court in this loaded Western Conference field. But at the same time, like, you're close enough, and particularly after the way the last two years have ended, like, I just wouldn't have made a change unless things were so bad behind the scenes with Chris Paul and James Harden that like they had no other alternative. And I don't know if that's exactly how bad it were. Like the Rockets have come out swearing up and down that this was not about that relationship, but yeah. maybe it was. Well, they also said they weren't going to trade Chris Paul. So come on, we know what they're doing. Um, they're, 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 right. they're working the court of public opinion. I don't want to let Maury all the way off the hook, okay? I think we could safely say James Harden did not want to play with Chris Paul, right? And I think that, you know, given that option of whether he's going to try to salary dump Chris Paul to somebody, he's going to try to take a flyer on some, like, distressed asset like a Wiggins, or if he's going to double down on star power and just pray that the fit stuff winds up working out because he's going to bet on talent, Maury's always going to side for that option. And, of course, that's going yeah. to, to appeal to a player who, as we know, all Harden has to do in a year or two if it doesn't work is demand a trade. <laughs> you know, that's that's what uh, the, the new standard of, of behavior in, in uh, the NBA has come, become. So he has no, you know, real skin in the game. Like, it, it doesn't affect him if this kind of goes south. He can just kind of bounce on to the next place, right? So I think that yeah. Maury landed uh, on the option that was appealing to Harden because that kind of fits with his general philosophy that he's had uh, for years. But to me, this just feels like, uh, an unnecessarily volatile chemis- chemistry test where it's like, okay, let's see what happens if we uh, take this uh, this approach to the nth degree and see how you know how radically we can test this uh, hypothesis that it doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, fit stuff is not as important as just pure talent. And to me, it's just unnecessary. I think it's kind of short sighted. I'm not sure it's going to work as well in the regular season as you're telling me it's going to work. Uh, you know, at all. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, when I kind of look going forward, the person who's going to pay the price here is Maury. If this doesn't work, what does Tillman Fertitta do? Who does he blame here, right? Um, ultimately, yeah. he's going to try to keep Harden happy for as long as possible. Um, of course, I pity D'Antoni. I mean, what an absolute mess for him to be walking into next year. I mean, good luck with that. <laughs> but I think totally. that, like, the, the people who are really exposed here – D'Antoni uh-huh. and Daryl Morey, right? If this doesn't work, those are the guys who are going to catch heat. And frankly, Morey's had a really long, nice run there in Houston, but he's sticking his neck out here big time. Yeah, well, it's funny. My first reactions to the trade were framed by how inconveniently timed it was because I had literally been back at my house for like three hours after a week in Vegas when that news came through and I was just very frustrated. So my first reaction was this trade is depressing for everyone involved and I don't know why we have to go through the motions pretending that it's something other than a depressing trade for everyone involved. Agree. And I've warmed to it a little bit since then. Because I do see a little bit of regular season upside for them next year and maybe this is just sort of a jolt that the entire team needed after the way things ended and assuming that things were worse behind the scenes than we realized. But an additional reaction that I had when I was in that first like cynical 20 minutes was like maybe this is their last ditch attempt to get Mike D'Antoni to just quit and sacrifice <laughs> next year's salary. Go back to West Virginia. <laughs> Yeah, so perhaps that's part of it. Uh, Maury, that that side of it is interesting too, 
because honestly, you look at what they gave up, and a lot of people said this on Twitter, it's not the craziest thing in the world to look at this deal on Houston's side and conclude that both Maury and Harden, like everybody is going to be gone in four or five years anyways, and that's the way they approach this. Because, I mean, they did give up a lot in, two. I think it's 2023 and 25 were the picks. And yeah, like, well, it's look a pretty at West- serious price. Look at Westbrook's track record, you know, of just blowing things up, having people leave. You know, it's uh, it's not uh, very promising, I think, for the people in Houston that, uh, you, you know, you're, you're welcoming this live wire into your environment and, and we'll see how it goes there. Um, to go back to that regular season thing, uh, the staggering that James Harden and Chris Paul did in Houston, that actually worked really, really well for the Rockets. And I think that that is sort of the magic elixir to make Harden and Westbrook work to some degree. Like they have to be playing a decent chunk of their minutes, not together so that each one of them is feeling satisfied, has enough touches and kind of do, do what they do best. Right. But what yeah. we, we really learn in the playoffs, like ultimately the staggering is not that crucial. It's the minutes that your stars play together because those stars wind up playing so many minutes in the postseason, especially Harden. He's like basically coming, never coming off the court in the playoffs. That if right. your two stars don't fit, if it doesn't work, you can't just hide that with the stagger. You can't hide behind the stagger as your explanation for everything. And I've already seen people try to go to that card and say, oh, uh, you know, it's not like they're going to be like fighting over the ball on the court. There's going to be plenty of time for both of them. During the regular season, there will be time. But in the playoffs, you know, there won't be. And that's when things blew yeah. up. We, You know, that's when Chris Paul and James Harden had those late game, uh, you know, frustration, you know, before game, the end of game six loss. They were kind of going at each other uh, reportedly. And, and after that game, they were not happy with each other. I mean, we know what they're arguing about, right? It's control of the offense style of play. Harden wanting to do it. Chris Paul wanting to do it. That stuff is yeah. unavoidable in the playoffs. Well, and that's kind of what I meant where, like, I think that they are going to find a way to win 50, 55 games during the regular season and make it all look mostly okay. But when you look at the way things are structured for the playoffs, like, that's a real concern. And the other thing that I worry about is, like, you can convince me, you can go back to OKC and say that, You know, James Harden worked well on the ball with Russ just like cutting and attacking closeouts. You can say that James Harden's game is perfectly tailored to work well off the ball and, you know, catch and shoot threes, moving. But like, that's not the way either one of these guys has played for the last five years. And particularly over the last three years, they've become the most ball dominant players like we've seen in 25 years. And you have to go back that, to the late eighties with Michael Jordan to like match some of these usage numbers. And isn't that a waste of Harden's talents? Like why would you want him off the ball ever? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, I think Harden had he come up a little bit differently could have been amazing off the ball. Like if Harden had played with the Spurs for the last 10 years, his game would be a little bit more dynamic and might be more effective in some of these bigger moments. But like he's perfected this particular style to a degree where like I don't first of all, I think it's too late to really change much at this point. And second of all, like what he does, I mean, the Rockets finish with the first or second best offense in the NBA every single year at this point. So, like, you don't want to screw with something that's working at this point. I mean, in another life, I could have been a swimsuit model, too. But come on. I mean, like, what are we doing here? We (laughs) got to work with what we've got to work with. 
you know, in Oklahoma City on their side of it, I mean, you're talking about how difficult it was to to trade that Chris Paul contract. Look, it was not easy to trade that West, Russell Westbrook contract. I thought Presti did amazing value. And what I would love to see him do here going forward is to just mm-hmm. kind of have a protest against all this superstar movement of bailing from the small markets. I want him to auction off every player of quality that he has and accumulate upwards of 30 first round draft picks <laughs> i want him to go all the way with it andrew because he's like three quarters of the way the, down the path already i want chris paul traded for first round picks i want danilo gallinari traded for first round picks i want shea gilgis alexander traded for first round picks and then whoever he gets back wow. in those deals <laughs> i want those players traded for first round picks i want him to just stage a one-man protest against the player empowerment movement just to kind of send a message to Adam Silver of like, look what your system has created. How do we possibly have any uh, hope of competing on a level playing field with the LA's and New York's of the world? What do you think? Yeah, well, OKC is the one franchise that has more legitimate beef with the NBA and the way these CBAs have been implemented than just about any other team in the NBA. Because basically every time there's a new rule change that hits the league, it somehow screws the thunder and makes their roster twice as expensive. And then you add that to all the player movement and all these kind of like smaller markets getting screwed. And I don't blame Presti and the thunder for feeling very upset. Of course, the uh, response from lots of NBA fans would be that OKC just straight up stole its basketball team from Seattle that granted, that's not the Thunder fans that did that, but yeah. like the ownership, their karma isn't great either. And so maybe that is part of the explanation with the way this era has gone down there. But um, yeah, I, I think Presti's a huge winner, and there's no way to argue otherwise. I do kind of feel bad for OKC in general because you're going to look ahead and say, oh man, they've got 10, 15 first round picks. Like no team in the NBA is better suited to rebuild and launch their new era and at the same time like i don't know man i mean it's going to be really 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 difficult to match the heights they hit with kd russ and harden and ibaka like you're rebuilding but you're also doing it against a curve that is basically impossible to replicate for sure. I mean, how many first-round picks do they have right now? It's something like 15 over the next six years or something like that. Yeah. Look at it this way. Would they trade all of those picks to go for a time machine to go back to 2016 and have Kevin Durant re-sign on a four-year Definitely. deal with them? <laughs> they would do it 100% without uh, hesitation. That's what they Honestly, would Honestly, it wouldn't even have to be a four-year deal. They would just love <laughs> to go back and replay 2016. Just give us one more shot. Let's see what happens. Let the chips fall where they may. You know, just like one more spin of the wheel is all the Thunder would want at this point. So... <laughs> Uh, just to tie this conversation up, I mean, does Houston fall out of that second tier for you uh, in the Western Conference, or where do you have them on the pecking order? Ooh, that's a good question. I think all of these teams feel kind of second tierish to me. I mean, who's in your first tier in the in the West? Um, if we're talking about like title contenders, I mean, I kind of feel like it was Clippers, Rockets, Nuggets. And then, like, maybe yeah. maybe Lakers, you know, you kind of just on the LeBron factor in terms of playoff matchups and all that. 
Um, I think I'm ready to bump Houston down to the second tier to put them with like the, okay. the Utah Jazzes of the world, the Portland Trailblazers of the world. Okay. See, I would say, first of all, you never mentioned my Warriors, my dark horse underdog Golden State Warriors next year. Okay, my, my to bad. Me, that's, a, that's an oversight. I put them in the second group right now. Okay. Uh, Mostly well, pending so Clay's first health. Tier. Like if, if we know Clay's yeah. healthy by All-Star break, then that's a first-tier contender. See, Clay is just like a bionic man, and I assume that he's going to be back not only healthy, but will come back by like Thanksgiving and just be ridiculous. Um Although, granted, the, the Golden State track record in the wake of the Durant injury will probably force them to be, like, extra, extra cautious. But I think whenever he does come back, like, realistically, probably February. Um, well, they should give him he, more than three months, don't you think? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Thanksgiving is Look, like you're, you're pegging a really aggressive timeline here. Again, Clay is not human, uh, and I have faith in him. But the the Warriors, the Clippers, and the Jazz and the Nuggets would be in my top tier. Houston would have been in that tier. I guess now I will bump them down to the second tier. So you don't buy any of the idea that Westbrook, surrounded by shooters, will be even better than he has been in Oklahoma City the past few years. Well, I mean, there's truth to that. There's no doubt about it. But the problem is we've seen Westbrook with all sorts of different types of players. You know, a really good shooter, Kevin Durant. Another really good shooter, Paul George. Uh, I think that he was actually better fits with either one of those players than he is with Harden. So you're starting right there from a deficit. Now, are you telling me all these supporting guys are going to be creating more space? Uh, I could see that, but they're still playing Capella. So like, he's still going to be in the paint. Um, and so I'm not sure it's going to be a magic cure-all. Is his finishing numbers uh, likely to go up a little bit? Yeah, I would I would hope so. I mean, they can't get a lot worse. Um, I, I would hope his shot selection improves a little bit because he is going to have a system that there's other high-efficiency options that don't just involve him you know, taking crazy shots off the dribble. Uh, I hope he cuts a lot of the fat out of his shooting diet, and I hope he trusts his teammates because there's some pretty decent players there uh, surrounding them. I mean, it would be an absolute shame if a guy like Eric Gordon uh, just got completely lost in the shuffle watching these guys dribble all day long. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be a magic cure-all. And look, I mean, offense is only half of the problem. You know, Westbrook got absolutely roasted in the playoffs this past year defensively. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I'm not sure how he you did. fix that. He did. Yeah, it's it's going to be tricky all around for Houston. Um, I'm we'll just see. Not My in the, condolences, I'm not in the, man. the business of selling any hope here. Look, if there's other people who want to do it, it's fine. I don't have the heart for it. I don't have the patience for it. Like, I will not believe <laughs> they can win a title, even if they're holding the trophy, Andrew. I will still doubt that. They can win the title. Wow. Okay. Uh, so that's a soundbite that people can throw back at us next year when we're in Houston, sell at the the Rockets title parade outside the Galleria. Just but, mix um, in three years worth of YouTube highlights of me just praising James Harden, bending over backwards. If you're gonna hold me to account on that one, but <laughs> look, that's how I feel. No. I appreciate your honesty, and again, my sincerest condolences. I hope you double up whatever um, whatever meditation time you had budgeted in your national park tour over uh, the next few weeks. There's no headspace it's, strong enough for this. It. No, there's no headspace strong <laughs> enough for this, Andrew. They don't they don't do dosages. I mean, you could be doing it for 24 hours a day, you still wouldn't be feeling 
uh, you know, good enough about this. It has been funny though to watch the existential crises that these guys are going through online, you know, because yeah, like. I kind of play a hard and true believer on TV, you know what I mean? But there's people out there right. who are just like the true zealots. You know, they're wearing their faux beards. Um, you know, they've <laughs> they'll put their hair into the mohawk if need be. I mean, they're completely all in on like the uh, you know the, the Church of Mori, and this right. is you know, I mean, whatever like, hacked religious metaphor that you want to make about, you know, somebody storming the church or like graffitiing this, the stained glass windows or whatever. I mean, that's what this trade is. <laughs> it's, it's honestly incredible and it's not going to feel real until we're a couple weeks into the season and Rockets fans are either defending underwhelming results or like wildly overreacting to a seven and two Houston start. Either one is going to be super entertaining to watch. Um, but yeah, we don't, just, I don't, uh, I can't read any, Oh, he went six for 20, but don't just judge him by the <laughs> field goal percentage numbers from wait. the Rockets. Fans. Can't you can't wait. do that. Okay. You've been harping on the field goal percentage for six years. You got to just let it go. Yeah. Uh, well, can we talk one other aspect of this is the Chris Paul side. And Abdul says, is a Chris Paul Minnesota trade realistic? I would assume it would have to involve some combination of Teague's expiring, Wiggins, and some sort of future asset on Minnesota's part. What do you think about where Chris Paul is going to end up? I mean, would he be willing to play for a team like Minnesota? I want to thank all the emailers. We had like seven or eight people write in to ask how I would feel about a John Wall for Chris Paul trade. I wouldn't feel great about Chris Paul at this point in his career showing up to just be miserable in D.C. But you still do and it. I feel like a lot of teams are sort of in that spot where they're like, yeah, Chris Paul could maybe help us, but like... He doesn't want to be here, and we probably don't need him that much. I mean, what it, like Minnesota goes from 11th place to maybe 8th place with Chris Paul. What do you think? Well, let's get back to Minnesota in a second. You'd still do that trade, though, wouldn't you? Um, What, wall for Chris Paul? Yeah. Uh, nah, probably not. I, I think that they're going to be able to do something more interesting with John Wall than trade him for, like, the twice. I love Chris Paul at his peak, but I just feel like at this point he's kind of spinning his wheels until he can get a buyout from somebody who's going to give him most of his money. And then he'll go play for the Lakers or something. Um, well, so on the Chris Paul side of this, first of all, I saw a lot of people uh, kind of pointing out that, you know, some of the problems with the collective bargaining agreement are sort of at, at his footsteps or his doorstep. Uh, because yeah. he was pushing so are. hard for the Supermax and, and taking care of the, the, the max level guys at the expense of the middle class players. Uh, I wonder if he could have predicted how this would play out for him, though, because this has got to be pretty darn close to the worst case scenario for him, right? I mean, he goes from yeah. the Clippers. I mean, look. To the you, Rockets, you and were, I predicted this. <laughs> like he he signed in or he signed in Houston. He started slow this year, and back in November, I wrote that the Clippers or no, the Rockets are going to trade Chris Paul within eighteen months. And you and I came on the podcast and talked about it, and we're like, yeah, there's no question that Maury is going to pull the ripcord the first opportunity he gets. So like the writing was on the wall if you were looking at this in a macro context. Right. So he gets paid, but now he's on this Oklahoma City team just kind of in purgatory. Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? If he stays, they go nowhere. 
I mean, he's, his reputation is definitely taking a beating in terms of trade value. I mean, look at what uh, Houston had to attach just to get Russell Westbrook, who's got one of the worst contracts in the entire league. Um, and then now, you know, Presti's going to probably have to move some mountains to, to get a deal done involving Chris Paul. And you've got, you know, the ultimate beggars of the league, the Washington Wizards, who are saying, no, no, thanks. You know, we're going to be choosers on this one. We're not even going to worry about Chris Paul. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like a really pretty substantial fall from grace for him. Uh, and I don't know what the happy ending is because like, you know, we talked about how Oklahoma City involved Westbrook in the trade conversations to make sure they did right by him. Like Oklahoma City doesn't yeah. have to do that for Chris Paul, right? They could trade him basically anywhere. I mean, they they might out of just a favor, but uh, it's not the same uh, relationship dynamic, loyalty dynamic that existed with Westbrook. So, I mean, Chris Paul for this guy who's like really done a nice job over the last five or six years consolidating power on and off the court, trying to, you know, better his own uh, you know, chances at furthering his legacy, winning a title, competing at the highest level, it basically just blew up in his face. And I don't know exactly how he's going to undo that. Um, and, and so I think from that standpoint, it's kind of a shame. I mean, it's not like I, I feel bad for him necessarily because this was of his own doing to a large degree. Uh, but right. he is one of the the losers of the chess match for this summer. Now on the Minnesota side, I spent a, a decent amount of time just talking to their people here in Las Vegas because they happen to be playing the championship game tonight. So they've been around for a while and you know, it's like, all right, well, good to see you again. Let's chat. I mean, they're preaching, <laughs> they're preaching sustainability big time. Uh, I mean, that's the whole thing. And they're, and it's all about cat. I mean, their mission is cat, cat, cat. And I think left unsaid is the, you know, the worst case scenario is cat just decides, you know what? I'm seeing all these other older superstars do it. I want to just pull the plug and leave Minnesota and at that point, they yeah. would be really up a creek. So they're going out of their way to sort of make him happy. And I think that was really a major driving force behind their chase for D'Angelo Russell. So when I'm looking at making Cat happy and sustainability as their priorities, Chris Paul doesn't fit either one of those things. Um, and so yeah. and so that's why I, I just think that, you know, to the emailer's point, is this realistic or unrealistic? I mean, to me, it looks unrealistic, but, you know, you never know. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. I just love that you're hanging out in Vegas for so long that it's basically just you and the Wolves front office and the 45 staffers that the Pelicans have on hand for their games out there. And um, yeah, that's it. It's, it's just <laughs> hey, like a group of 65 still at Vegas Summer League. Zion, John Morant, Jaron Jackson. There was a few sole survivors who made it all the way through yesterday's games, but it's going to be 
uh, tumbleweeds tonight because we've got Memphis, we've got Minnesota playing for the title game. They're without their lottery picks. We'll see what the crowd looks like. <laughs> um, but look, I'm not complaining. It's been a great time, very uh, productive uh, Las Vegas uh, week. And I think it is a good opportunity to really dig in on some of these organizations that we don't talk about a ton and say, like, what are their priorities? And at first, yeah. at first you might think, like, wow, Minnesota, like they could never get a player like Chris Paul. They should really do that. Uh, but when you look at how the Jimmy Butler thing blew up, how that really alienated their fan base, how the idea of going for short term just to do everything just to get into the eighth seed, uh, just so you could say that you made the playoffs, um, that left everybody really unsatisfied. Like people were not happy with that. And, and, you know, we talk about like a team like Sacramento, just doing anything possible to make the playoffs because it's been mm-hmm. so long. Um, you know, Minnesota sort of lived that and they found out that it wasn't very fulfilling and that it didn't, you know, it, it didn't uh, bring about a huge rush of fan support. Uh, it just sort of left everybody saying, well, like, now what? Where are we going? What's going on with Wiggins? How, well, how are we going to build around Cat? You know, it's a countdown to him leaving. Oh, God, you know, what are we going to do? And I think, uh, you know, so it's good that they changed their front office. There's no doubt about it. But I also think it kind of clarifies how we should be viewing what their their motivations are right now. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult to build a team from where the Wolves are sitting, where the Grizzlies are sitting, Um, just in terms of like, you look at the West and it's so deep out there. And I talked to somebody with the Grizzlies about this, like you just have to take the longest possible view. But along the way there, it's it's very difficult because you can't really get anything wrong. And the Wolves got a couple big things wrong. They got Wiggins wrong, and now he's very difficult to move. Anthony Bennett, remember him? Yeah, well, Anthony Bennett, That was the Cavs got that way wrong, and then he was kind of just like a throw-in to the Wiggins deal. That was such a good finesse. They could just pitch it as two number one picks. That was an all-time trade finesse. (laughs) Very, very misleading. But you know what I mean where, like, I just kind of feel bad because there is also a lot of these markets, like the Wolves – are the fourth or fifth most popular team in Minneapolis. So they can't necessarily just like bottom out and punt four years and say, all right, well, Kat, don't worry. In 2023, you're going to have help around you and fans will show up again and you're going to love it here. So they kind of have to thread the needle between competing now and building for the long term. And that's just a really tough place to be because eight or nine times out of 10, that doesn't end well. So we'll see how it goes in Minnesota. But like it, it is true that we don't talk about them enough and we probably don't appreciate how impossible the NBA must look to teams like that. Yeah, well, for them, it could be worse because they've got cats. So that's like the, the starting place. But it does ramp up the pressure. And I think it does you know, force them to get really aggressive on a player like D'Angelo Russell. And I think that's going to be sitting for them potentially later this year. And I think, you know, for them, they should be willing to overpay to get him. I don't love him as a player. I think, you know, he's, he's fairly overrated, but um, he would be worth a lot. But that's the type of gamble that you have to hit on to make it out of that sort of 10th seat purgatory. And it's worth doing because the alternatives are like not super attractive. The alternatives are, all right, let's flip, Chris Paul, or let's flip Andrew Wiggins for Chris Paul and hope that works and hope that he can play till he's 37. So, um, yeah, I feel you on that one. But let's spin it forward to the Eastern Conference quickly. Uh, what did you think of the Ben Simmons extension, Ben? 
I was fine with it. I mean, I don't, I don't really have a hot take either way. I mean, I think that I saw a lot of angry people online, you know, harping on the shooting stuff and whatever else. But you know, number one pick, uh, I think you know, plus defensive player, playoff experience, uh, impact offensive player. Even though he's not perfect, uh, you know, very high ceiling. Already established himself as an all star. I think that's the going rate for guys like that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, I think the test for a contract like that is whether you can trade it. And Ben Simmons is now clearly overpaid, but you could definitely trade him to 15 teams around the NBA. Oh, Whereas, 100%. You know, and, and, like, another, yeah. another test so, is, like, where does he rank on their worst contracts list? Like, he's behind Tobias Harris and Al Horford, so it's fine. <laughs> That's true. That's another good way to look at it. I think it's going to be still really, really interesting to see what happens with Simmons and Embiid over the next few years. But it was one of those things where there was a lot of argument about Simmons and his value today. And I think the correct takeaway would just be that it's the middle of july and people are just looking for stuff to argue about because that that seemed like it was pretty clear cut we did get one email from brad who said sharp you mentioned on last week's pod that philly hasn't gone after a capable point guard in four years well remember markel fultz isn't that what they were going after he was supposed to be the guy with all the tools they needed And my response to Brad is that, no, I did not remember Markel Fultz. That is 100% correct. I have pretty much like blacked out Fultz's entire two years in Philly because it was so depressing and maddening to think about. Um, But yes, it it is crazy. It was also your fault, too. I mean, you you got in the fistfight with Simmons at training camp over whether he was a point guard, (laughs) and then you cursed Fultz with your your, glowing pre-draft profile of him. I know you feel guilty about, about both of those situations. Look... You've got Rockets blood on your hands, and I ruined Markel Fultz's NBA career. No one on this podcast is innocent. I apologize. And it is something that we should all remember as we argue about the Sixers over the next five years. The Fultz story is one of the craziest things we've seen in the last 30 years. It only gets weirder, man. He was man. the perfect missing piece for them, and I just can't believe it. Yeah, it it, it does get weirder. I don't know if we're going to see him play in the NBA again. So he's at Summer League uh, hanging out again for like the third straight summer, not playing. I took so much crap from the Sixers fans for, you know, getting on him about not playing in previous Summer Leagues. You did. And I was dead right about that. And I think that one point I might have made along the way is that he's wearing a chain that has his jersey number on the chain. If you're not playing for multiple years, are you allowed to wear a chain with your jersey number? It's just a question. I just want an honest question to ask that, throw it out to the audience, see what they say. Um, I realize this is in a similar vein to my idea about Sean Marks not being a power broker because he wears Adidas. I might be harping on the minor fashion details here, but I think there's some truth to it. Fultz, uh, why is he here? Why is he in Las Vegas watching these games? What is the point of that if he's never going to take the court? Does anyone need developmental minutes more than Markel Fultz at this stage of his career? Other than like Bull Bull, I can't think of anybody else. Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. And I hope that Fultz makes it back to the court at some point. And I also hope that at some point you write a book with a 
collected index of <laughs> Do's and don'ts. all your weirdest takes <laughs> and stuff that is just absolutely not fit to print. Um, just make make a coffee table book no, out of that Andrew, one day. Uh, bottom line, if you wore a gold chain with like a typewriter, like, you know, a typewriter layout, that's cool yep. if you're doing cover stories for Sports Illustrated, Andrew. <laughs> if you're on sabbatical for three years, just bumming around playing video games, doing whatever it else is with your life, and you show up at a writer's convention and you don't participate, you don't think anyone's going to say, why are you wearing a typewriter chain? Like, you don't really deserve to wear that? No, I know someone would. It would be you. And I'm glad that I can count on you well, to hold me accountable in this wherever I go. How much shame would you feel? That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one. Uh, again, the Fultz thing is just tough all around. Um, but sticking with Summer League for a few more minutes, Darwin says, Dear Andrew, I love the pod, but after the draft, I thought you were very unfair by saying that you hated what David Griffin did by trading down for more assets. After watching Summer League and seeing Jackson Hayes ball out, are you still sure... Darius Garland was a can't-miss prospect. I'm giving you a chance to backtrack before the season starts and the Pelicans blow up. Are you willing to give David Griffin the apology he deserves? Slow down real quick because it wasn't just Jackson Hayes. This kid, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, might have been the best guard, maybe the best overall player in Las Vegas. I mean, he just had a phenomenal week, right? So if you're David Griffin... I think you reached peak validation for your draft day strategy, which got a lot of criticism uh, by you and others in terms of you know trading out of that uh, top pick because Garland didn't play and both Hayes and Alexander Walker both played well. So that's the framing. Are you going to double so, down or are you willing to say Griffin is like a, a magical uh, oracle, you know, like a Warren Buffett style <laughs> draft picker? What do you think? All right, so first of all, I like to pride myself on the ability to admit when I'm wrong, and I don't tend to dig my heels in. I'm willing to kind of, I'm the grease pig. You've nicknamed me the grease pig, and I look at that as a virtue well, because when I'm wrong, I'll admit it. I can hear but, that being said coming. Here it comes. That being said, I absolutely do not owe David Griffin an apology. I will double down. I didn't even say Darius Garland was a can't-miss prospect. I have no idea how good Darius Garland is. I do know that his ceiling is higher than Nikhil Alexander-Walker or Jackson Hayes. Jackson Hayes has looked awesome at Summer League. He does not necessarily know how to play basketball beyond running really fast and dunking all over people. But that's a pretty great place to start, and his numbers have been real solid. Nikhil Alexander-Walker has been even better than Jackson Hayes, as you said. Um, I do wonder about how he's going to adjust to NBA athleticism and elite guards. Um, I think uh, on draft night, what I said about him is that it's hard to imagine him ever being better than an above-average NBA starter which I still feel pretty good about. And with Jackson Hayes, I think maybe he could be an all-star one day. But even if he were an all-star, I don't love the fit with him and Zion. And so that was another reason that I was a little lukewarm on the choice. But more than anything, I think you just got to go for like the guy with the potential to be an all-NBA level sidekick to Zion. And it's a process thing for me where like you're more likely to get that guy at number four 
Garland, if you if you break it down in, in, in a scouting context, has more of that upside that the Pelicans should have been seeking. So while both of these players are clearly good and the Pelicans scouts like know what they're doing, I still would have just swung for the fences on Garland rather than kind of just stockpiling good players because I don't think you're going to keep someone like Zion if he's a superstar by having a bunch of above average talent. You need elite guys. Um, well, I'm glad that you didn't do a 180 after like 10 days of summer league where most of the guys didn't play because <laughs> it's it's tricky to know or to evaluate even your argument if Garland's just not on the court, right? Like, how are you supposed to yeah. say, if he comes out there and he's the best player, he wins MVP honors, this argument is just moot, right? So I think that's number one. Um, number two, I mean, Jackson Hayes had a, a lot of highlight level plays both ways. I mean, obviously everybody saw the poster dunk. But lots of impressive block shots. I mean, he's getting way above the rim, almost blocking stuff with his elbow. But, I mean, he still well, needs to add a lot of strength. you know what I would say about him? Yeah, what I would say about Jackson Hayes is what you can tell from Summer League is the guys who pop athletically, the guys who stand out on the court. And when you watch Jackson Hayes move, you can tell within 30 seconds that he is in a different category than 95% of the other guys in Summer League. And that's a really good sign for what he's going to be able to do in the NBA. So yeah, there's no question that it's not just the highlights. It's like the way he moves, how fluid he is athletically. I mean, he's going to be useful. Yeah, and you know, among the rookie bigs, I mean, he definitely stood out. But like, he's got to add strength. You know, it's going to be a multi-year process with him. You know, basically, no question. Mm -hmm. And so... To run away from your stance, you know, knowing that he's going to require years of development. And Nikhil uh, Alexander-Walker, you know, like we've seen guys get super hot for two weeks. Now, like sustain it against NBA caliber competition for an entire season. That's a totally different question. So um, I thought the Pelicans wind up leaving Vegas basically as the big winners, considering that, you know, Zion, his injury basically should have ruined their entire week and instead like it just opened the opportunity for two other guys to play really well uh, yeah but I, I don't think that there's like definitive you know conclusions to be reached after this it wasn't like you know I mean Jackson Hayes was having great performances but he wasn't putting up like 25 and 12 you know what I mean like it wasn't like he was right. uh you know just completely beasting everybody he was he was doing well for a player who was picked you know what eighth um and that's that's what you would hope for but it, he wasn't like taking the entire summer league by storm yeah well and he's not super skilled which again is like i don't know about what his fit is going to look like with peak zion um but we'll see i and for me it really is like a process versus results thing which is a really dorky way to look at this uh but that's the way i think about the draft and that and whether garland is good or not that's the guy they should have swung on um but as far as Summer League is concerned, I'm glad that Jackson Hayes, because there were a couple days there where there was nothing going on, and then Jackson Hayes had a few dunks that at least provided some viral highlights for everyone to get excited about, and uh, the Pelicans are going to be awesome to watch next year, because there are like 10 guys on that team that people will care about. I have no idea how their rotations are going to shake out, but it, it, it'll be fun to watch them kind of figure it out on the fly. And speaking of another team that will be figuring it out on the fly, Mateo says, what do you guys think about what Daniel Gafford and Kobe White showed during this summer league? Maybe Sharp was not so far off thinking the Bulls might actually make it to seventh place in next year's East. 
So, Ben, what have you seen from Daniel Gafford and Kobe White? Do you have some hot Daniel Gafford takes for me? I mean, the seventh place thing is so misleading. You said 42 wins, which is going to be like third place. Um, uh, listen, <laughs> I said 42 and then quickly corrected myself, yeah. knowing that the Bulls could not possibly hit that benchmark. Seventh place, I'm sticking with it, though. Um, Kobe White had some very electrifying sequences uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, he's a really fun player to watch because he's got this like herky jerky, um, you know, just very slippery handle where like he's in total mm-hmm. control and he just kind of, you know, you get one-on-one with him and you're getting happy feet and you're getting nervous and he's just trying to put you into the blender. He wound up uh, basically playing for a bull summer league team that got blown out a couple of times, really did not have a lot of organization to what they were doing. And it was just a lot of freelancing for him. And so yep. some of his accomplishments to me just kind of felt like like empty calories a little bit because like they didn't have anything else going on. And it was just like, hey, Kobe, like go save us, go do whatever you want. It just felt like a little bit like and one mixtape to her. Uh, he wasn't doing a ton with the pass. There was some turnovers, decision-making questions. Um, so I to me, I came out of that thinking like, I don't see point guard for him really at any point here in the next couple of years. I think he's going to be better used as a bench scorer um, and with like just limited, you know, distribution minded responsibilities. Um, they've got, you know, some shooters in their front court, some floor spacers in their front court, which could help that, you know, cause I think he's going to be able to be a guy who gets, you know, turns the corner and then finds the right guy, whether it's Lowry or Wendell Carter or whoever else. Um, yeah. I just didn't see the overall command maybe that I was I was hoping to see but the guy can get buckets he just did not shoot the ball very efficiently and I don't want to totally blame him for that because uh you know the Bulls were you know on the scale of most impressive teams in summer league they were not on the scale you know yeah what I worried about with Kobe White is that as I said I believe draft night like he shot it well by the numbers at Carolina but his release point was kind of screwed up and he's one of those guys who you would hit three you would see them hit threes in college Josh Jackson was like this at Kansas too and you'd be like yeah okay so that went in still don't know if this person is actually a great shooter or not and um and so Kobe White going three of 30 in Vegas is like not super encouraging as far as his his perimeter shooting is concerned Granted, it can't possibly be that bad in the NBA. I think he was at like 12% or something. So, um, so yeah, I think what I worry about with him is that he's going to be better as a sixth or seventh man long-term in the NBA, which might be fine on the Bulls um, because they have my guy Tomas Sadoransky right now. But uh, if, if people are expecting him to do more, I don't have a ton of confidence in his ability to be like an above average all-star level guard. Um, Daniel Gafford is good, though. I, I was joking earlier, but um, I, the bits I saw of him in Vegas, he was pretty impressive. And I think that's, that's kind of a nice steal for the Bulls, who have had a competent offseason for the first time in what feels like 10 years so this is a step forward i mean my biggest daniel gafford take was i saw uh, a woman on the concourse wearing a chicago bulls number 12 jersey and it looked like authentic and i got really excited because i thought she had spent like 350 dollars for the mitchell ness rare edition michael jordan number 12 jersey where Uh, He's on that famous Sam Vincent basketball card because somebody stole the jersey out of his locker, so they gave him a blank number 12. And I was like, man, 
this is like one of the coolest fans in this entire building that she was able to like rock this rare jersey that only true basketball card collectors and Michael Jordan dorks would know. And then it just turned out <laughs> that it was one of Gifford's family members because it was just his jersey with his name on the back. And, um, you know, frankly, I left a little bit let down. There you go. That's the color we're looking for from yeah. Las Vegas. I think the Bulls um, should retire 45, 23, and 12. Yeah, uh, why not? You know, it's not like there are future Hall of Famers in their midst right now. Um, although, look, Lowry, anything is possible. <laughs> okay. This is a real prove it year for Lowry right now. But um, either way, now that we've made it to the Daniel Gafford section of the podcast, we should probably go big picture at the end here. And I do have one question from Joseph who says, no doubt that Kawhi's playoff run was a performance for the ages, but it recently got our NBA group chat talking about his place in history and whether peak Kawhi is better than peak Kobe. As a lifetime Laker and Kobe fan, I could not bear to let this comment slide and got into a heated discussion about how Kobe is clearly the far superior player. What do you guys think? So Ben, what's your take on that one? It's a really, really interesting question, and it's a tough one because how I guess first of all we should determine how are we defining peak? Are we saying for one game, for one series, for one season, for mm-hmm. who had a three-year stretch as their peak? Like, what what's your definition of peak there? Okay, so I'm thinking for one playoff series. Like when I hear Pete Kawhi versus Pete Kobe, I imagine, all right, so I'm entering the finals tomorrow. Which player do I want on my team? And in that context, it feels blasphemous, and I don't like feeling this way because people criticize Kobe too much and I think more than anybody over the last 20 years we end up underrating how incredible he was for 10 or 15 years but I would take Pete Kawhi over Pete Kobe in a playoff series wow for what reasons uh better defense more efficient scoring um you know basically those two and Pete Kobe look now I'm gonna become one of those guys who's criticizing him but I, I think he we fail to appreciate what a great defender he was for as long as he was and what a reliable scorer he was. Having said all that, like Pete Kobe could drive me insane and was not fun to watch for long stretches of his career. Whereas Kawhi is more clinical without some of the like crazy ten of twenty-seven nights that you get baked into the Kobe uh the the Kobe equation. It's really hard with Kobe because like the peak version of Kobe where he was just like the purest, you know, form of himself as a player did not necessarily coincide with like the most successful stretches of his career, right? Like when I when I yeah. when I initially think peak Kobe, I think of him just like running off all of those 50-point games, but you know, not on a team that was like competing for titles. You know what I mean? It was like that. Yeah. Inter- that was like Medvedenko era. Right. It was like the interim period between when he's, you know, kind of, you know, playing one B to Shaq. And then when he's, you know, teaming with Pau Gasol and that kind of loaded team, like later in his career. Um, so from that standpoint, because I value winning over everything, I'd be leaning most likely to Kawhi. I think Kawhi's defense is better than Kobe's or is at least comparable to Kobe's offense. And then I think Kawhi's right. offense is a cut better than Kobe's defense was. 
Um, and I say that just because, like, especially if you're putting them in the modern era, is Kobe as versatile defensively um, as, like, the very best perimeter defensive wings that we have today? I'm not sure he is. And then the efficiency stuff, you know, that's obviously very important to me that, that you already mentioned. So I, I, I don't feel very good about this one either. I mean, this is kind of a, a question that makes you feel dirty when you're trying to answer it. Um, you know why it makes us feel dirty is because it makes us feel like the recency bias millennials who will like pop on Twitter right. and say that like James Harden is better than Michael Jordan or something well, you, like you that. Know, like, I, it makes me feel dirty because the greatest ability is availability and Kawhi just hasn't been nearly as available as Kobe was for like basically two straight decades. Right. And so I think that, yeah. I view Kobe less about his peak and more about like the total breadth of his accomplishments. And I really am hesitant to kind of crown Kawhi among the NBA's all-time greats based off of, what do you want to say, two you know pretty good postseason runs or like one and a half, yeah. like his last year in San Antonio before he got injured, and then this one. And then he was, I mean, frankly, a role player the first year that he won the finals MVP. So you give him credit for that. I mean, it was great that he was hitting the ground running like that. But it wasn't like magic, you know, rookie year magic carrying the Lakers to the title. I mean, it was a, a different deal. So, right, I, I think I agree that Kobe's longevity is part of what is too often taken for granted, particularly when you start comparing like Kobe's career to Dwayne Wade's career. What Kobe was at the same level Wade was at, except he did it for fifteen or sixteen years, which is kind of mind-boggling when you think about guards and how steep that curve is when we, when you think about like elite athleticism and what it takes to really dominate at that level. And um, yeah, so I, I, I agree that in that context, there's no real, there's no real comparison between their careers right now. Right. And I think that people will run with this idea that Kawhi's prime was supposedly, we're saying it's better than Kobe's prime. And to me, that's less relevant because Kobe had a significantly better career um, on basically every count. And I think that Kawhi is already so deep into his career that he doesn't necessarily have enough time to make up for some of those starts and starts earlier on, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and Kawhi, I think what makes him special as I, as I think through this, um, you know, he's able to just like overpower people and get easy offense Whereas Kobe, part of what made him so frustrating is that he actually liked the harder offense. And so I would just wait, wait, feel wait, wait. a lot more comfortable. That made you frustrated? What? You love guys like that. You love people who make easy I, things look difficult rather than difficult things look easy. Well, look, Kobe was not a likable player when he was at his best. So perhaps I was just biased as I watched him. But at the same time, like I don't really enjoy watching Russ. I didn't really enjoy watching stretches of Iverson's career. So I, I like the little guys like Lou Williams who um, are too often go underappreciated or are scorned by the basketball internet. But like once you get to the top of the league, I'm not looking to call like the quote unquote best player in the league uh, or celebrate the best player in the league who's out there going like 10 of 30 every night. Yeah, I'm just going to give you some stats here real quick from like uh, Kobe's best runs during a championship season for them. So he went 29, 7, and 6 in 2001. He went uh, 30. Yeah, I think the, the Kobe and Shaq Kobe was probably the best version of him. Then he went 35 and 5 in 2009. He went 29, 6, and 5 
in 2010. And then Kawhi just got done with this run, and basically it was 39-4, and four, um, you know, shooting almost 50% from the field, 38% on threes, and, you know, obviously, you know, defending at a very, very high level. So this is a real, this is a real conversation, right? I don't think there's a lot necessarily yeah. separating those guys. Whichever one of those years you want to call Kobe's peak, He's sacrificing some efficiency. There's no question about it, but he's still producing at a very high level consistently throughout multiple series, whether it was the 21-year-old version or the late 20s version. Um, well, the last thing that I want to mention and the reason I included this, uh, I wonder about where Kawhi's place in history will be. And I wonder about how we'll remember his career because that's something like when I look ahead at the Clippers – I don't totally trust the supporting cast. I think a number of those guys are candidates to regress this year. But I, I also think like if Kawhi does win a title with the Clippers this season, it would change the way we frame him in such a dramatic way that the result next summer, if he comes out and wins a title in June, like the, it, the conversation would just be irrational to me and I don't think that we're going to end up remembering Kawhi or I don't think that we should remember him as one of the like 15 best players of all time Wait, so you're saying but it's, I think it's irrational would. because people would come out and say he's won three titles and, and potentially three finals MVPs on three different teams so therefore he deserves to be uh, above like who like Kevin Durant I mean who else would you put him above I think people would start talking about him in those terms, like like who's had the better career, Kawhi Leonard or Kevin Durant, and um, and that to me feels like it would be crazy, and that's why just on a gut feeling level, I don't think that this is going to end with a title for him in L.A. because that's like just because of like that's the way the basketball universe works is that like, all right, so Kawhi got your title, but you're not on the KD LeBron level in the same way that I don't think that LeBron's going to win a title with the Lakers because that will end with a lot of people saying that he's better than Jordan, which I don't think is true. And um, I think that the basketball gods will intervene on this one. That's, that's my ultimate Clippers take is that Kawhi is not a top 15 guy and it is more, appropriate and I think more likely that we're going to look back on this one run with the Raptors as one of the craziest six month spans we've ever seen a superstar put together and um, he'll be remembered as as that outlier superstar more than like a generational superstar generation defining guy yeah I mean I think the, the tricky part for him is that you know he's only got three all-star game nods you know at this point of his career and like I think he's 28 so I mm-hmm. mean even if this goes forward you know smoothly and he, he winds up with like six or seven like or you know or maybe even eight like that's still like a cut behind you know total accumulation where the very elite guys are you know at the end of their careers right so I think there's going to be people who are saying There'll be people who will, who will downplay his role in the first one for sure. They'll hide, you know, the, they will say, "Look, the Toronto one was just like a magic act." And then I think everything going forward, right. if if he winds up, you know, sustaining excellence in in L.A., I think he's going to get credit for those. But I'm not sure that history is going to remember him as a top 15 guy just because uh, his journey is just so different than the traditional you know, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, LeBron James type story. 
where you know he didn't come in and dominate right away. It took him a couple of years to get up to an all-star level. It wasn't his team, um, you know, really until Duncan retired. Uh, he he yeah. quit on the team, you know, and that's going to be part of the story as well. So uh, I think that he doesn't care about legacy, and it's a good thing that he doesn't because I, I think even if he won the third title, it would be more of a an oddity almost than it would be of like right. some crowning career achievement. Yeah, I'm not saying that's fair. I'm not saying that's fair. By the way, I just think that's how people would uh, respond to it, right? Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, he does. Even the way this whole summer has been framed is sort of distinct from the way we would talk about any other superstar. So maybe that will continue for his entire career, and we'll think about him as an outlier forever, um, which would be fine. I don't know. You're you're a Clippers believer, though, correct? Well, I've tried to explain this to you, but not every favorite is created equal, right? I think the Clippers deserve mm-hmm. to be the favorite, but I think that's a deep, crowded pack. I think one injury screws any of the top six or seven teams in the Western Conference and takes them out of the conversation. So I think they should be viewed as the front runners heading into next season, but not overwhelmingly so. I don't think anybody's even coming close to having an argument of being, you know, what Golden State was here for the last, you know, four or five seasons in terms of how they should be viewed. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they didn't win it. I mean, I think, you know, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, those teams have easy, easy there we go. paths there we go. to the finals, right? The Eastern Conference, you know, uh, the East could swoop in at the 11th hour. But, yeah, I'm with you. I think that there are five or six teams in the West that should be co-favorites, and we'll see where it all lands in May and June. Come on, co-favorites? Now you're just going to make something well, up. Well, look. All right, look, if you want to say the Clippers may be technically favorites, I would, in a Clippers-Warriors context, if everybody's healthy in May, I would side with the Warriors in that one. Um, And I worry about Patrick Beverly. Aside from my mystical Kawhi-like theories and where he's going to rank historically and the way we should put him in context in the NBA and in NBA history, I do worry about their bigs. And I worry about their guards, and I think that they need to make another move or two before they are someone that we should look at as like the clear-cut favorite. But um, either way, I kind of like that everybody's on a level playing field right now, and that that's part of what makes next year's West so much fun. And now we've got Russ on the Rockets, you know? Another wild card added to the mix. Who, who? I mean, how did we get so lucky? We are very lucky. I mean, why stop at five or six co-favorites? Let's just say all 15. I mean, honestly, like, it's <laughs> wide open. All 30 teams are co-favorites right now, Ben. Uh, it's the middle of July. Presti's going to trade for 31st round picks. It's all on the table. Uh, that would be so awesome, though. Don't you think that would be pretty funny, just to, like, prove a point? <laughs> he should do it. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Andrew. I guess so. Uh, another great chat. Thank you very much for setting aside some time to school me with your... Uh, egalitarian uh, gambling preferences for all the all the different teams in the western conference uh, i'd like to encourage all of our open floor listeners to check us out on apple Podcasts by finding our page search for open floor that's two words once you get there scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars leave us some kind words it's just that easy we're also on the world famous radio.com slash open floor andrew i'm about to hit the road for about a week take in some beautiful sights and sounds of the American Southwest so people can follow along on Instagram at Ben.Oliver. It will be phenomenal. I promise you. 
And until later this week, when I will catch up with you from an undisclosed location, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Hey.